Hey everybody, welcome back to the Music History Project. Today's episode is all about surf music. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right, guys, we're so glad to have you back with us today. We're going to be discussing surf music in honor of International Surf Music Month. So we're very excited. Yay. That was a very enthusiastic. Did deal. you like that? Well, yeah. I was hoping Mike was going to chime in with his. I mean, year. I was excited, but I just wasn't as excited as you, I guess. You were internally yeah. excited. <laughs> I was internally exactly. as excited. <laughs> Mine came on as a yay. <laughs> yay. And it's cool because we have assembled uh, some audio clips from interviews from the oral history program here at NAM of those who talk about it, those who are legends within the surf music movement, and uh, people who have in, been influenced by it. So it's exciting to uh, have this opportunity to talk about uh, this great genre that basically st started in Southern California in the early 1960s and uh, came with it some heroes and uh, legends, including Dick Dale, probably best known as the, the king of the surf guitar. We did have an interview with him that we're going to play a little bit later on, along with some folks who have had bands uh, not only here in California, but around the world playing surf music. So it'll be fun to hear uh, their perspective as well. If you're not too familiar with surf music or you think you aren't, because that's really what it is, you think you're not familiar, chances are you've actually heard a lot of surf music throughout your life because it's been featured in tons of movies uh, and other instrumental hits, as well as some iconic bands that we're going to hear from some members of, uh, which is really exciting. So don't, uh, if you were thinking about turning this podcast off, skipping forward, don't, because you actually know more than you probably think you do. So, but we're excited to teach you a little bit more and feature some of the big names in surf music. Who are we going to start with first, Mike? So first up, we have Paul Johnson talking about the identity of surf music. Here's Paul. Surf music is identified now with that reverb sound because the biggest hits did have that reverb sound to them. Mm. But it was actually being called surf music prior to the uh, the reverb even coming out, like Dick Dale's Let's Go Trippin', which along with Mr. Moto, there's a question as to which is technically the first surf record, because his, his record hit the charts first, but we had actually recorded Mr. Moto three or four months before he recorded Let's Go Trippin'. But those were the first two records that were kind of acknowledged as surf music. Hmm. Um, and that's because the surfers were going to the dances, his dances in the summer of 61 in the rendezvous ballroom in Orange County and the Bel Airs were throwing dances in the South Bay. And I remember the surfers coming to the dances and basically calling it surf music. Mm. Um, this was, but this was before there was reverb. And I think the important point for the, for the record is that 
it was really the surfers who made that identification. We were just playing, as far as we were concerned, we were just playing our instrumental favorites from mm -hmm. the Fireballs and, and, you know, Link Ray and Johnny and the Hurricanes and Dwayne Eddy. And then the Ventures came along and that was, you know, that was important too. But um, So does it have to sound a certain way to be considered surf music? Well, the thing is, at first, but what it was is we were playing the stuff, uh, I'd say the closest to surf music before surf music would have been the Fireballs. Because you had George Tomsko uh, with the Fireballs was doing dual guitar stuff. Then the Ventures came along and actually after the Fireballs had kind of pioneered that dual guitar sound, the Ventures came along and with Walk Don't Run, they suddenly kind of took the spotlight away from the Fireballs and they became the band that was best known for that ensemble sort of approach. I'm trying to get at the question of um, what distinguishes the sound, and the fact of the matter is that um, the distinguishing sound of surf music kind of came after the fact, because what happened was we were playing this music, which we learned from these other bands, um, and, and as far as we were concerned, we were just playing in the style of the Ventures and these other bands, and we were playing at these dances, and the surfers come to the dances. And I remember distinctly the night, the first night I ever heard the term was uh, one of the local surfers, and I think it was Lance Carson. He was like, a, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, it was Lance, who came up and he said, wow, man, your music sounds just like it feels out there on a wave. You ought to call it surf music. Because see, we, what we did was like in the summer of 61, we threw these dances. And we, and we just happened to be playing around the beach, and so it happened to be the surfers who were coming to the dances. So we had no preconceived idea that we were playing, quote, surf music. We were just playing, the, and, and it really was just our take on these other bands, but they started calling it surf music. And the same thing was happening down in, in uh, Newport Beach with Dick Dale. And the surfers were going down there, and the same thing was happening. And I remember going down there to hear him play, too. And there was no, in the beginning, up through uh, until that summer, there was no self-conscious pandering to the surfers. It wasn't like we were, there was no songs with surf titles or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the surfers started calling it surf music, and by the end of the summer, the, the, that's, that's what it was. It was surf music. It wasn't until the next year that Fender invented the reverb. And um, so that's like I say, our, uh, Dick Dale and, and the Bel Airs each recorded their our records that became hits during this early period before it was even called surf music. Mm. But by the time the summer was over and those records came out and went on the charts, they were being called surf music and we were being called surf bands. Then all of a sudden you had all these other bands who were coming around and going, wow, this is cool. This is a whole new deal. Let's jump on it. So, so somebody else called you a surf band before you did. Absolutely. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember thinking that this was kind of a strange, you know, kooky idea that I didn't really identify with it that much myself. Um, uh, although, you know, once it caught on, uh, you know, that's what it was. You know, it was being called surf music. Um, and, um, but the original surf musicians were not surfers necessarily. You know, they may or may not have been surfers, but 
in our case, like at the time, I think, uh, you know, we weren't really ad avid surfers. Uh, we hung around the beach, you know, and we were part of the beach culture. And uh, but, the sur but the surfers, that was not a big deal to them, you know, because they just liked the music. And in fact, I think they even kind of admired and appreciated the fact that we weren't pandering to them. Mm -hmm. Because about the same time the Beach Boys came along, uh, in, the, in early 62, their record came out, you know, Surfin' was their first record that was on the radio. And I remember the surfers around the beach going, who are these Grammys, you know, and what is, what is this all about? What does this have to do with it? You know, Cause, because it, they were, it wasn't the instrument, the, the, it was the instrumentals that they were calling surf music. Mm -hmm. And this vocal thing about surfing seemed to be kind of one step removed and seemed like these were outsiders who were trying to kind of jump on the trend and, you know, because it was, it was like, by this time, the whole surf movement was exploding. It was a big trend. And, this, and it just sort of seemed to the surfers, in fact, I remember there were some surfers down there on the beach and when they started, the Beach Boys came out, I remember these guys saying, who are these guys? Let's go beat them up. Because <laughs> they thought they were perceived as kind of candy coating the whole deal, you know. And then, um, so they had two or three records that were about surfing. And then they went on to singing, you know, fun, 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 cruising songs about cars and girls and stuff. And, when they, and once they started doing that, they were embraced by everyone, including the surfers, because then they were being authentic. Whereas when they were, there was always that sense that when they were singing about surfing, it wasn't quite authentic. Which is ironic because the instrumental bands, the ones who were playing what we were calling real surf music, were not even necessarily surfers. Mm -hmm. But we were being authentic because we were just playing the music. And the surfers were the ones who were making the identification. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, if, if, uh, if, if, in the beginning when the musicians started getting self-conscious about it and started trying to, you know, be like surfers and everything, it had some of that same connotation of, well, it was kind of like playing a game here, you know, and mm. come on, just make the music. <laughs> so that was Paul giving us a background about the identity of surf music and what makes up the foundations of surf music. And if you've never heard Paul Johnson's name before, we're going to have Dan give us a little bit of his bio. Well, the neat thing about Paul is he basically, in my estimation, sort of single-handedly kept the surf guitar sound alive throughout some of the, the times where it was more dormant, like the 70s and 80s. It became much more popular in the 90s, and a lot of that has to do with the festivals and, and uh, collector programs that were put together and hosted by Paul, who gets a lot of kudos in my book for keeping that alive and bringing together people like Gil Orr, who was also a part of a program here at the NAM building in the Museum of Making Music, in early 2000s about surf music, and Paul really did a great job putting that uh, together as well. So we'll be hearing from Paul a little bit later on, uh, but first up, I think we're going to hear from the King. Well, we thought a perfect introduction to have us kind of learn about the King of Surf Guitar would be to have some of the other icons of surf music give us his background, give us his bio. So instead of us giving you all the important names and dates and facts about Dick Dale, we thought it, who better to do it than some other people in surf music. 
So first, we're going to hear from Bruce Johnston, who is of the Beach Boys. Right. One of the great singers of the, the Beach Boys and been with the Beach Boys for over 50 years. So here's his take on Before Dick Dale. Before Dick Dale was a surf guy, he was kind of an Elvis guy. And uh, Dick Dale, uh, we, we played um, one time. I was back. I was, oh, we got to back up. Uh, um Shit, I'll think of it in a second. But I was still in one more summer. I had two more summers of this. And uh, uh, Dick Dale opened, and Dwayne Eddy was the star, right? But Dick Dale's darling father, what a guy. He had his little ass cap pin on, a suit, and he'd be in the audience, and Dick would doing, be doing his singing, and he'd say, Dick, play your trumpet. Play your trumpet. You know, and, and there I am watching Dick do his thing. Then they had the flamingos, so I'm doing, I only have eyes for you and playing the you know. It was really mind-blowing before they invented that word for a little guy in high school. It was really cool. Great times. I wouldn't trade them for anything. That was Bruce Johnson of the Beach Boys talking about the icon that is Dick Dale. And we're going to hear a little bit more before we get into talking about... Um, before we hear from Dick Dale himself. So to give another little introduction about the king of surf guitar is Paul Johnson again. He was already, um, I would say that he was m much bigger in the beginning than the Bel Airs, well, all the way through. He, was, he really deserves the title king. <laughs> you know, the Bel Air, we were just kids and pretty, um, he, you know, pretty fresh and new at it. While he was already a seasoned player, had a very powerful band with a lot of big equipment, you know, and they they had a massive sound. And frankly, we the Bel Airs during that summer, we were just kids with small amps, and and our sound was a lot more naive and simple and simple, you know. Um, he was much more sophisticated by that point, so it's like, you know. And then I remember going to see him play and being, you know, blown away because it was so powerful. And um, you know, within the next year or so, we were stepping up to that level where we got bigger amps and we, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, we got a little more energetic and everything and, but they were, but Dick Dale was definitely the pioneer of that big powerful surf sound. So once again, that was Paul Johnson and before him, Bruce Johnston talking about Dick Dale and leading us into the king himself. So coming up next, uh, we're gonna hear from Dick Dale and he's going to be talking about his first guitar and learning how to play. I read a Superman magazine, and it said, sell so many jars in Noxzema, and you can uh, uh, get this ukulele with a cowboy on it, and I want to be a cowboy singer, so listen to Hank Williams, you know. And, and so I went out and sold Noxzema skin cream in the snow at night, you know, banging on the doors, you know, and they go, Dickie, why aren't you in bed at school tomorrow? Buy my skin cream. I'm still shaving with Noxzema. <laughs> And then what happened was I waited about four months after I sent the money and I never got it and I finally got it. And when I got it, it was this compre compressed sawdust cardboard and the pegs would just fall out of the holes. And I mean, I was so discouraged. I painted green, you know, the cowboy on it. Yeah, he had a lariat and a horse. So I finally got my little red wagon there, my rider, and I went down to the store cashing all these little Pepsi-Cola bottles I could find, and I got about six bucks, so for five ninety-five, I bought a plastic ukulele, cream on top and brown on the sides. Got a little uh, 
chord maker that you'd strap on, you'd push it down and give you the key of C. Well, that didn't work because the strings rattled. So I got a book and it says, put your finger here and like that, put your fingers here. But I couldn't understand why my fingers wouldn't go there. Because the book didn't say, turn it the other way, stupid, you're left-handed. Because I had all the rhythm on the canisters playing to the Harry James records, was in my left hand, being left-handed. Then I decided that that's where I wanted getting my pick. So, you know, I get, I was going, I was playing like drums, like dun dun da da dun dun da, instead of the old country like, but like that, you know, I was doing, creating, we called, I called it rockabilly, and that term wasn't even used then, because I was rocking a song, the Tennessee Waltz, you know, and I'd be doing all these rhythms. Well, I'd go to bed at night and I'd tape my fingers like that, still didn't, the light didn't come on and say, you know, it's designed for a right-handed player. I just kept stretching my fingers and finally played three chords. And it went like that. It goes, that was the, the C, or that G, that's C, and that's D, I guess. And then back to, to G. Well, uh, 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 then one day, so I started to play about four or five country tunes, and I'm playing on this ukulele, and doing all this that kind of a rhythm. Then I went out to the, to the farm and with my buddy uh, Lester, we started, we were picking some uh, swamp berries, blueberries. My grandma would make the old blueberry turnovers. And you know, you can ask me what time it is, I'll tell you how to build a clock. You know, that's just basically the way it goes. <coughs> so I don't want somebody to assume something, you know. What did you do yesterday? I went to the store. Well, why don't you tell them you got held up, you know. But the thing is, is we were walking out there and we heard this sound. And, and, and everybody was like, a, I'm hearing this drum. And I'm going, you know, this is like deliverance, man, where we were. We're in the swamps. And I said, should we go there? Will they kill us or what? Well, anyway, we walked in, two young little kids. And these guys, there's about 10 guys all sitting there strumming and they had a tooth here and one ear and a cigarette rolled up in here. I got the blues, oh, oh Lord, since my baby said, the real, real, real old country singing. So I said, wow, look at them guitars, they're, they're real guitars. And I goes, I'd give anything for a guitar. Well, I got one for sale, really, how much? It's eight dollars, eight bucks, eight bucks. $8 was all the money in the world to me. And I, so I turned around and said, will you take payments? And he goes, you take 25 cents down? No, 50 cents. All right, give him 50 cents. Can I make 25 cent payments? No, 50 cent payments. Oh God, well I tried to run out in the last payment and he caught me on the street and he hugged me upside down and took, the, took it out of my pants. Anyway, I'm holding this guitar now. I got this big guitar with a big hole in the middle. Well, it's got six strings though, what am I gonna do? And he goes, well just play the ukulele chords, you know, just hit those. But if I did that, it would sound like this. That don't make sense. And then my C chord would have sounded like this. And then the D chord would have gone like this. See, it doesn't match. He goes, just don't play the other two. Just muffle them. So I used to go like this. I only strum these. I go like this. I was waltzing with my darling to the Tennessee waltz when an old friend I happened to see. Nobody knew I couldn't play the other two strings. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so I fooled them for years and years, just playing on my little old four stringers and <laughs> doing that. That was Dick Dale talking about getting into guitar, learning how to play, which is really cool. I mean, the fact that Dan was able to capture an interview with Dick Dale to sit down with him is pretty amazing. I mean, sitting down to do the prep for work for this podcast, um, again, being kind of like the novice of the group in terms of musicians and music products. Um, I had heard his name, but I didn't know much about him. And when Mike was telling me, oh yeah, he played, you know, this track or that track, I was just like, yeah, mm-mm, don't mean nothing to me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but as soon as the first couple notes came out of my speakers when we looked him up just because Mike was adamant that I knew who it was. Um, I was like, oh yeah. And I feel like that's how it is with a lot of surf music. You've heard the track, but since they're mostly instrumentals, you don't all the time hear the names or hear the people behind the tracks. So you know the song, you just don't know who wrote it or where it came from. Right, and it was like, what is it, Miserloo? Did Mm -hmm. I say right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as soon as it played, I was like, oh, Pulp Fiction. Like, that's how I knew it. And then, you know... mm. Just kind of was like, oh, I know more than I thought I did. And that's always <laughs> exciting. Well, the same is true for the next guy, Will Glover. Um, he had a band called The Pyramids, and in 1963 had a big hit called Penetration that um, by name I don't think most people know. Uh, I was along with you guys. When I heard it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that song. Um, and what's really cool about this is uh, Will is the uh, the only surf guitar guitarist that I've interviewed so far who's also African-American and uh, because of that he was able to um, bring surf music to a wider audience and a a role he was very proud of and so here's a segment from uh, his interview. My uncle Joe gave me this guitar. It was a beat up K guitar and uh, strung totally upside down and I taught myself how to play except uh, every now and then I would run into somebody who knew how to play and they would show me a few chords. So as time went on, I uh, got a little better and uh, then I moved to the Naval Project. I didn't move, my dad was in the Navy. We uh, ended up in the Naval Project and in the Naval Project, there's all, all kinds of races, all races that, that, that uh, all over the world. Everybody was there. Everybody was there. <laughs> it's just amazing. And the Guamanians, Hawaiians, and uh, Samoans, and everybody, and everybody played guitar, ukulele, or whatever. And so I'd get out there with my guitar by myself, and they say, hey, come over here. Come play with us. And I'd say, oh, I can't play with these guys. <laughs> they know how to play. But what would happen is they would show me their different styles of rhythm, and, and the different ways that they would play. And it became such an education just learning those things and the way they would sing along with uh, the instrument that they played. And um, it helped me so much to just, not just to be a rock and roll player, but to be able to play like they play on the islands and everything, and it was great. And so uh, it was good that that happened to me. Okay, that was uh, Will Glover. Awesome guy, as you can tell, very passionate about music making, and it was a real thrill to hang out with him. Um, just another shout out for uh, all those wondering where all these interview clips are coming from. This is uh, all based on the NAM Oral History Program. And Elizabeth, where can they find clips? Oh, my favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> you can find our whole collection at www.nam.org. 
org. That's N-A-M-M dot org slash library. So as we're talking about um, surf music, uh, I thought we'd take just a quick second to give a shout out to some of those musicians who were the pioneers, not necessarily playing um, surf music themselves, but certainly uh, a huge influence on the generation that came after them, including Dick Dale and, and Will Glover, uh, Paul Johnson, who we've all heard uh, previously and will be hearing from again and others. Um, and the, the first guy that comes to mind is Link Ray, who uh, really is given credit uh, for creating the power chord, which, of course, surf music would not be the same without. Uh, the Ventures, uh, including uh, that great guitar by Noki Edwards, uh, also cited often as an influence. And then this next gentleman who, along with his high school mates, started a band called the Fireballs. Mike, tell us about our next interviewee. Well, our next interviewee is George Tomsko. And as Dan said, he played with the Fireballs. And he's going to be talking about um, his switch over to the guitar after learning an instrument previously. When I was, uh, let's see, nine years old, is in the fifth grade. And we had a mini assembly. Two brothers First time I had seen an electric guitar and an electric amplifier. Two brothers called the Amadeo Brothers did a little mini concert for us and they played Guitar Boogie Shuffle and another song. But as soon as I heard Guitar Boogie Shuffle, one of them played lead, one of them played uh, rhythm, I was hooked, you know, and I went home that night and said, Mom, I want a guitar, you know. so. They wound up getting me one uh, for Christmas or birthday or something. Huh. Yeah, a little. It was a catalog guitar, <clears throat> but that was the start for me. That was George uh, talking about learning guitar, switching over to the guitar. And <clears throat> we're going to round out this segment about these musicians getting their start in music in their first instruments, hearing from Bob Berryhill. And I got to say, as the person who sits in this office and screens all these interviews and kind of puts together our outline for this podcast, along with some other projects where I listen to full content of interviews, Bob's was really exciting because he brought his guitar with him. And he played a lot during it. So it kind of broke up when, you know, eight hours a day is listening to people talk and give us their story. They're all dynamic, but, you know, you kind of hit that funk. So it's always exciting when people bring their instrument to sit down with Dan and incorporate music into their oral history interview. So if you're on the list to get interviewed and Dan calls you and you play an instrument, just bring that gigantic like church organ with you somehow <laughs> because I'll like it better on the back end. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Bob is going to be talking to us about how he first got his start in music. What's really cool about Bob is his um, his passion. We talked earlier about uh, Paul Johnson being the guy who sort of single-handedly kept surf music in the forefront but i have to pause and also make sure that bob berryhill gets a little shout out for that as well as a member of the safaris he had a couple of big hits in the 60s including surfer joe one of my favorites and of course the all-time classic wipeout so here's a few words from Bob. Basically, um, what got me started when I was 13 years old, I um, went to Hawaii with my parents on vacation, and uh, we uh, went to a hula show 
where they had professional ukulele players and singers and dancers. And a gentleman came out uh, in the middle of the show and played just a great ukulele. It is kind of a just beautiful music, melody uh, and everything. And I said, I looked up to him and I said to my dad, Dad, I want to do that. So the next morning, I came down out of the Kaiser Hawaiian Village down in the lobby and I saw this gentleman walking across the, the foyer and I ran up to him like a little 13-year-old would and said, I need a ukulele. Can you pick one out for me? And so we went downtown to the ukulele shop and he got a couple off the wall and played them for me and said, yeah, this is a good one for a kid. Got me a booklet and said, showed me a few pointers and set me off on my way. And so when I was 13, I came back on the SS Lurleen which was a cruise ship coming from Honolulu to Los Angeles. And I sat in the lobby playing ukulele with a little hat out in front and people would throw pennies in there and I had enough to make candy money all the way back, you know. It wasn't anything like Disneyland today where you got all those great things. I mean, I went outside to play shuffleboard and hit the shuffleboard and it flew off because the wind was so how loud, so hard that it blew the a shuttle thing off the boat. So I said, you know what, that's probably not what I'll do the rest of the day. So I hung around, but anyway, came back home and uh, went up to Glendora Music and said, I want to learn how to play ukulele. They said, well, we don't have anybody that can teach you ukulele, but I have a lady who can teach you guitar. So I said, well, I've got a guitar. I said, it's got six strings, four strings, what's the difference? Went back and I spent about a year there with Linda, my guitar teacher, and she had different recitals and so forth, and I started doing pretty good. It was kind of like I was just kind of, I was picking it up really fast, you know, and started doing things. In fact, my first song was Bulldog. So first time I heard that, I said, I want to do that too. So she played that song for me and said, let's play it. So I kept working until I could figure that out. And then uh, Bulldog, Ramrod, turned into the next Tequila. You know, and I was learning all the instrumental songs of the day. So I was sold on instrumental music. All right, that was Bob Berryhill. And that rounds out our topic about hearing these guys getting started in music. And we're going to kind of shift gears. What's our next topic, Mike? Our next topic is recordings. Well, you were a lot more prepared than I thought you were. I, I was. Like pull a fast one on you. I know where we're going. <laughs> so we're going to be hearing from a, the same group of guys talking about some of their favorite or biggest recordings and or. And the first guy we're going to hear from is Will Glover. So as Dan mentioned, he was with a band called The Pyramids. And he's going to be talking about the first recording experience he had with The Pyramids out in Long Beach, I believe, is where the studio was. Now this is a long, it's not a long story, but it's a kind of a, this is how the pyramid started. Okay, basically, I was a surfer and hung out with a lot of surfers okay, because of the west side where I lived in Long Beach. And I'd go down there and I'd take my guitar to school, that was the first thing, which was kind of odd back in that time period, nobody took their guitar to school, they took their trumpet, but they didn't take their guitar. <laughs> I took my guitar to school and I would get out there by this one tree and I would just practice. And by this time, I had decided to learn how to play with uh, the correct way of stringing the guitar. Because I would try to do the Johnny Mathis songs, you know, they got all those minor ninths and it's just hard to make those minor ninths. Of course, like that, I'd have to think so far ahead so that I could get to it so I could make the chord like this. It was weird, so I started all over again, once again, in the Naval Project, and 
taught myself how to play again, uh, to, uh, the correct way. And so um, I would take my guitar to school and I would play. Then I'd go to football practice. <laughs> and then I'd go out there by that tree and I'd practice. And then I would go to some class. And uh, Skip came by one day and he says, hey, what are you doing playing the guitar out here? I said, well, it's what I do. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're a gymnastics guy, and, but this is what I do. So then the next time he says, hey, would you teach me how to play guitar? I said, well, I'll show you what I know. So it was raining like mad one night. And there's this knock on my door, and it was Skip and his dad. <laughs> and my mom said, well, who, are, who are these? I said, well, you know, Skip from school. And it was like 9 o'clock. But she let me go with them, <laughs> which was interesting in itself. So we went over there, and we started practicing, and, uh, and I showed him a few things. And then he just took off. Skip became uh, really good on guitar, playing lead. And uh, then he says, why don't we get, uh, start a band? I said, well, I always wanted to be a single artist. And I said, well, OK, maybe. You know. And then it happened all of a sudden. <laughs> he starts getting these guys, and the band gets formed. Now we have to go back to the surf deal. I used to take my guitar also to Linden Beach and play my guitar out there on Sundays. I'd go out there, it was like religion. I'd go out there on Sundays and play my guitar. And you would see that there was like this V, and there was this trash can, where I would sit out there by this one trash can, play my guitar, and you would see this V of people. How the V would, how they would start at the V, right there. They would have their blankets and everything around this little kid out there playing his guitar. How good I was, I don't know, but they, they would come. <laughs> anyway, and uh, this friend of mine came up uh, who was a surfer, and he said, you know, Will, I'm going to make you a star. I said, well, you know, thank you very much. <laughs> well, this guy was so poor, uh, I don't, uh, it was kind of like a joke when he said it. Two weeks later, there we are. You asked the question, how did your uh, recording start? It started with him. He somehow came up with the money. And uh, we recorded, I forgot the name of the place, but it's in Long Beach. Um, and we did Pyramid, Pyramid Stomp. That's when we, that was the first song we did. And Pyramid Stomp, of course, it didn't do anything, but uh, it was recorded, and bam, that was beginning. And then from there, believe it or not, we did Here Comes Marcia and Penetration. Here we are in high school, and we got a hit record. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, and our parents, you know, they were amazing. They, I, I don't understand to this day how they could not know that something was happening with their kids. Because if I was to turn TV on and see my kid on American Bandstand, I would say, wow, <laughs> I think there's some money to be made here. You have to be making money, son. You know? And uh, I would have uh, investigated more. But none of our parents. They just thought it was a big, a nice hobby, you know? So, uh, <laughs> anyway. So I really like how we have organized this. And when I say we, I mean Elizabeth. Good job <laughs> with the outline. Um, as we continue to celebrate uh, Surf Music Month, um, talking about recordings of some of the folks that we've interviewed, that was Will Glover talking about the pyramids. Up next, 
the king of the surf guitar, Dick Dale. The first album that was ever done, Surfer's Choice, with a picture of me surfing on the cover, that was the first picture of anybody taken surfing and put on something for business. It was taken by John Severson, 7.30 in the morning under the pier in San Clemente. The album was called Surfer's Choice. We saved up our pennies and put it together because everybody wanted me to record something, so my dad and I just did it together. The song Mizzaloo that's on it is the one that inspired Quentin Tarantino to write Pulp Fiction. Uh, it's become like a national anthem. It's been on the Olympics every year, every day, Russia, everywhere. Uh, even now, with, uh, the four, with the Amada commercials, Nissans, uh, the most expensive commercial, uh, and uh, number five with the Mountain Dew for the Super Bowl. It's, it's becoming like an, an anthem. Uh, There's my music in Disney and Space Mountain all over the world. Well, what happened was, doing that, uh, Leo, when he built that sh dual showman, that and the mixture of the Stratocaster and the big strings and the speaker combination gave Dick Dale this powerful, fat sound. And it was exactly, you turn up the bass so it's full and bring up the treble so you can hear on the edge. How simple is that? Now everybody brings equalizers and all this other crap. I can't even understand that. All these stupid little levers that you got to push. I mean, what the old days was where it was. And when I play on the stage, I play the same way. People are going, wow, where do you get that sound, man? You know, the guitar player from The Cure said, Mr. Dale, that's the first time I've ever heard speed play, and I could hear every note. And, you know, I just f fooled them all. I mean, they rated me number 31 in the top 100 greatest guitarists in the Rolling Stone. I can't even play the scale. I mean, without making a mistake. <laughs> I can't read music. I mean, the guys are the top guys are people like Stevie Vai. These are the guys who are just the Eddie Van Halens, the Stevie Vai that studied every scale that there was to study. I know, but you must recognize the fact that your tremendous um, style has put you at 31. I mean, you know, you have a style and a way of playing that nobody else does. It's a power. It's a, it's a very animalistic. I was raising lions and tigers for 30 years, everything. You've, I've had them all, uh, gorillas, apes, every type of creature that the Lord made. Uh, over 40, 50 sp species. I wanted to be a vet, but I didn't have the heart to tell people their animals had died. It, it would just kill me. So I just took care of animals and raised them to pre uh, preserve them from the, the poachers and stuff like that. When my elephant would scream when I'd come home, or my African lion would, my mountain lion would go, like that. I would imitate this on my guitar. Then I'd be surfing from sun up to sun down. All of a sudden, the same rumble and the roar that was sucking me in, taking me over the lip, taking me down and spitting me out and taking me back again. Uh, the, the sound, unless you've ever been sucked under you know, a 15-foot wave, and you're down, and you're being nailed against coral and banging, your, you hear this stuff hitting you, and your head's being nailed. These sounds, these growls, these roars, these are the things that I was just getting pissed off and emulating them on my guitar. Take that, you! You know, like that, and I'd get in there. So it would be, I'd stick my finger in the wall of a wave, and it would go, like that, and I'd get that sound. 
So it was a mixture of all my, the roar of my lions and tigers and the, and the surf. I mean, they could have called me Dig Dale, King of the Jungle. I mean, but because I was surfing, they called Dig Dale, King of the Surf Guitar. And I used to make fun of that. You know, I used to go and get one of those hats in the McDonald's someplace, you know, those king hats, and walk out and go, dee -dee 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 -dee. and then I got really scolded by an agent, a big agent one day. He said, Dick Dale, he said, don't you go and put that title down. He said, there's only been two kings that has been actually acknowledged and laid in stone by the historians, and it's also by the White House. Dick Dale's the only one that his life story has been inducted in, into the Congressional Hall of Records. And Congressman Jerry Lewis went on, on the floor and said, Congress, sir, and they all voted, members of the Senate and everything else, to put Dick Dale's life story into the Congressional Hall of Records, into the White House for all time. And, that was, and the, it's weird, because my lucky number is 13, my son was born on the 13th. Everything is 13 in my life. Serial numbers of my airplanes, the, the, the street addresses I lived on, Monsoor, my M, my last name, 13th letter. I never knew anything about this until Joe brought it to my attention. I was inducted on the 13th into the Congressional Hall of Records, into the White House. Now, that's got to mean something. Well, at the, end of the, at the end of that letter, it said, Dick Dale is truly the king of the surf guitar. So this agent promoter said, Dick Dale, there's only two people that they've ever recognized as king of something. That is Elvis, the king of rock and roll, and Dick Dale, the king of the surf guitar. And Elvis used to take me up and down Hollywood Boulevard in a Stutz Bearcat, uh, and the cops would pull us over and they'd go, oh, it's you. And he'd have his shades on, he'd go, they go, do you want a, you want a manager? He'd go, thank you very much. And he'd drive away. He's just a great, great person, big heart. And he was, and then even in the Kempo, in the martial arts has been my whole life. And that's why I've raised my son the same way. And Ed Parker from Hawaii. And I've gone through many, many, many styles through the world, but Ed Parker was very dear and his family is very dear to me. And his, and his kids would call me Uncle Dick. Well. Ed, uh, Ed gave his Kempo sticker to Elvis on stage and me on stage. And we both were, and Elvis put it on his black flat top guitar. And I've always had mine on mine in homage to Mr. Parker. Well, sure, this is the title that is stuck. All the other guys wanted titles, uh, but they, they didn't stick as true as historians would call them that. So. I said, all right, I won't make fun of it no more. Mm -hmm. But it's haunted me in a way because if we go and we do a, a show and we say, King of the Surf Guitar, only the people who think of the surfy things will come, not the other, kind, not the other people for guitar lovers. And I've proven it by not saying King of the Surf Guitar, just say Guitar Legend, and I asked this man on the street, I went up to a black man with the promoter and I said, would you go see King of the Surf Guitar? And he said, no. And I said, why? He says, it ain't my bag man. I said, would you go see a guitar legend, even if you never heard of him? Oh, I dig guitar man. It's just the way things are done. People, when we used to advertise Dick Dale, we used to say, I wanted to give the band a name. 
I mean, we could have just kept the Dick Dale, like Tom Jones or anybody else, Elvis Presley. But, you know, I said, oh, let's dress the band up in uniforms, you know. So we did. And when they changed their jackets, I had the different color. And then I wore my color, they had their color. <laughs> so if they wore blue, I read red. If I wore red, if they, like that. Well, what happened was, when they'd advertise, they'd say, stop down the Riverside National Guard Army and say, Dick Dale and the Deltones. All right, sounds cool. Everybody went down to see Dick Dale and the Deltones. Now, 20 years go by, and I go, what's your name? And they say, Dick Dale. Dick who? <laughs> no, then you ever hear Dick Dale and the Deltones? Oh, the Deltones! It's because the Deltones was the last thing that rang in their ears. Once again, that was Dick Dale, and next up we're going to hear from Bruce Johnston uh, of the Beach Boys again, talking about California Girls. The first song I recorded with the Beach Boys was California Girls, and I was called by Mike, and uh, you know, a few weeks earlier said, Brian, uh, as you know, doesn't go on the road anymore, and Glenn Campbell's starting to work in his career. Who do you know? I called 10 people. I still at Columbia Records. And then I said, well, look, I can get down to New Orleans this weekend. It was April 9th, 1965. And it just started there. Then I came home, and Carl said, you've got to come back out. And one thing led to another, and Brian said, you know, we're making this new album. Uh, I'd love to hear, see what your timber uh, would sound against the rest of the band. So I had like a sub lead and an answer lead in California Girls, you know, trial uh, by fire, of course. That was Bruce Johnson of the Beach Boys talking about Cal the song California Girls, um, which like makes me flash back to my childhood because we listened to the Beach Boys all the time in the car as a kid. It was insane. I, mm. And I'm sure road trips to California. Yeah, that would hit. The, that would make the playlist. You just like as you're rolling into San Diego, yep. coming from. So I'm from Phoenix, rolling into San Diego, on I eight, and you just gotta play it, and then you roll your eyes because your dad's in the front seat, and you're just like, <laughs> oh, you're so embarrassing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so next we're gonna hear from George Tomsko again, and he's gonna be talking about a really cool story where his first recording session with the Fireballs, um, he gets to meet the man the myth the legend any guesses you guys know because the sheet's in front of you yeah yeah well i did the interview so <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember three thousand later course. it was buddy holly of course that was really cool i mean i really love meeting people who met buddy holly it's really kind of cool because um it was a moment in each of their lives that they're very proud to talk about so it's kind of fun to hear this from george I really wanted to be in the music business, but uh, I didn't know how to get there from here. You know, I mean, the closest I could get to the music business is when I turned on the radio and listened to it from Nashville or from Big D Jamboree, or, uh, Springfield, Missouri, the Ozark Jubilee, uh, just all those jubilees and western things that were happening that were being broadcast on AM radio at the time. And uh, mom and dad didn't have the money to really send me to college. And I really didn't want to go to college, but I did get a scholarship for good grades, which I had to work real hard at, but, but I did get some good grades. And I won a scholarship to New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology 
and you worked a half a day and went to school a half a day. So while I was there, I was playing a little demo that we had cut with the, the music band teacher in Raton, New Mexico, when the fireballs were uh, jamming and rehearsing. And I was playing that on a little record player and a, uh, one of the students came by and was leaning up against the door of my dorm room and listening and then I didn't know who he was. And then when it was finished, he says, who's that? I said, oh, that's our little band in Raton, the Fireballs. And he says, you ought to go down and record at Norman Petty's studio in Clovis, New Mexico, where Buddy Holly and the Crickets record and Roy Orbison and Buddy Knox. And I says, goodness gracious. I said, where is this? He says, my hometown Clovis. And uh, that weekend I went home and I got on the telephone. I told, called the guys, I said, hey, there's a studio, recording studio in Clovis, New Mexico. So I got on the telephone and I called down there and Norma Jean was the secretary. She answered the phone. And I said, we want to make a record. <laughs> We're up here in Ratode. She says, well, just a minute. She said, uh, I'll let you talk to Norman Petty. I said, oh, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. Do I want to do that? I mean, you know, this guy's the guy that recorded Buddy Holly and, and everything. And, and uh, I, uh, I said, okay, well, he got on the phone and he said, well, can you send me a tape recording of the band? And I said, no, because we didn't have a tape recorder, you know, and I didn't want to send one of those discs. And I said, I really fibbed to him. I said, you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be down there uh, playing around that area. We didn't have any plans to do that. I just told him that. And he said, well, well, that's good. Maybe uh, I said, uh, could we come by the studio and just audition live for you? Because I, I felt like once he heard us live, that he would, uh, he would like, like, our, like the band. I just, I wanted to believe that, you know. And so uh, we hung up the phone and I called the guys and I says, man, we've got an audition on a Sunday in two weeks. Now, because Norman said that he would audition us on a Sunday, but it would have to be after two o'clock because he, he and Vi uh, were church musicians. He played piano and uh, played the organ and Vi played the piano and said he wouldn't audition anybody until after like two o'clock. So uh, we made arrangements to be there on, on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, the night before, I, well, I went back to school Monday morning after the weekend that I booked the thing with Norman and talked to him. I went back to school and started checking out of school and told the professors I was going into the music business. <laughs> and we hadn't even had the audition yet, you know. But I was just that determined that that's what I wanted to do. And we had to find a job uh, so we could earn the gas money to get down to Roy, New Mexico and play the job and then go on down to uh, Clovis. So we, we found a little bar there in, in uh, uh, Roy, New Mexico, uh, Ragoni's Bar. It was, and I called down there and 
they said, no, we don't have anybody in two weeks on Saturday night. And I said, well, how much do you pay bands for playing? They said, we don't pay in anything. He says, you, you know, we charge a dollar a person and uh, you can have the money at the door and we'll, we'll take what we sell in, in the bar, you know. Okay, so we did that, and we earned a couple hundred dollars, actually. They, a lot of people had come down because we had already established uh, a little bit of a following. Uh, people knew about the band. So when they heard that we were going to be playing in Ragonis uh, Saturday night in two weeks, the word spread. Well, we had a good crowd, and uh, we went on down to Clovis, and got there Sunday morning, early in the morning, and uh, checked into the hotel, motel, and uh, was at the studio at a little bit after two. I think Norman said, let's, uh, we'll, we'll audition you about three o'clock. And we were there at three, and we started setting up and rehearsing, and waiting for Norman to get there. And uh, there was a couple of young men in the uh, control room of the studio. We didn't know Norman. We didn't know anybody. You know. It was all we knew was Norma Jean was the secretary. And so uh, uh, Norman, uh, we, we kept rehearsing. And I, then I asked Norma Jean, I said, where's Norman Petty? You know, we, we, kept, we kept playing and playing and, and uh, these two guys were working in, in the uh, control room. And finally, she said, well, she says, Mr. Petty's in the other room. And I expected to see a guy with a white shirt, you know, and maybe kind of with the buttons pulled apart. I'm sorry I messed with the microphone, but with the buttons pulled apart, maybe smoking a cigar. And that was not the case at all. He was a very clean, cut, very uh, groomed young man, a young man. And uh, so he come walking in and, and uh, he said, uh, yeah, he said, I, I've been listening to you over the microphone. And the reason he did that was because he knew that we would get nervous, you know, when we knew that it was Norman Petty. So he had heard us without us knowing that he was listening. And that worked out pretty good. And then we played some more songs for him. He asked if, uh, if we uh, had written any songs, did we have, the question was this, do you have any original music? And, and I says, original music, what do you mean by that? And he said, have you written any songs? I said, yeah, we've got two. And we had written one instrumental and one vocal. He said, did you play them? I said, yeah. He said, play them again. Okay, so we did. And he said, yeah, he says, I think those are pretty good songs. He said. So, if you record, who's your publisher? I says, what's that? <laughs> he said, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna have records out or if you're going to record, a song needs to be published. So, I says, well, we don't know anything about that. You know, he said, well, uh, he said, if 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 we record you, would you care if I published your music? I says, I mean, here's. Here's the manager for Buddy Holly asking us if he can publish our music. And I says, whatever that means, yes. 
And so um, we wanted to record right then. And he said, no, I don't record on Sunday. And uh, he said, uh, we said, well, what about Monday, you know, tomorrow? No, I've got a session with Buddy Holly and the crickets Monday and Tuesday. So he said, why don't you guys go back to Raton and we'll figure out another day, uh, another time to get you back down here to record. I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave town, you know, and I told the guys, he, when he went out well, there, I said, this guy likes us and we're here. Let's just stay in Clovis until we can record, which would be Wednesday. Well, two of the guys had regular jobs. Stan was supposed to check into college uh, down in Las Cruces the next day, Monday. And uh, I really, you know, uh, was all I wanted to do was I wanted, I didn't, didn't want to mess that opportunity up. So two of the guys wound up calling back to Raton and saying, I'm not going to be to work Monday and Tuesday. Stan didn't call his folks. Uh, he just didn't show up for college. And so uh, that's how we wound up doing our first session uh, Wednesday of that week. Was, I know it's a long story, but that's how the pieces fit together. And what were the tunes? Fireball and I Don't Know. I Don't Know was a vocal by Chuck Tharp, and uh, he was our lead singer, and uh, Fireball was an instrumental that I had written in a school down there in uh, New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology. So did you that, see Buddy Holly at all? We did. Uh, they, Buddy and the Crickets recorded Monday and Tuesday, then they left, and we got in there Wednesday. That was George talking about meeting Buddy Holly, and that's a perfect way to plug a teaser, because coming in the next year or so, we're going to be hopefully releasing some more content about Buddy Holly, and we're really excited to put that package together for you guys. Yeah, out of all of the 3,500 plus interviews that Dan has done, I think one of the most talked about topics is Buddy Holly, and when we put that together, it's be a lot of work but it will really tie the whole collection together so make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that way it can hit your um playlist feed, phone feed uh. whatever you listen on <laughs> <laughs> and next up we're going to hear from bob berryhill again talking about um the song wipeout and actually playing a little bit of it you know we had played uh, for about three months we were a real experienced band we're 15 years old two guys three guys 15 one, an old drummer of 17. you know we felt we, we were pretty good and so when we came out to do the re the uh, recording of surfer joe uh, our, our manager goes boys you need a second song for your 45. what's that well you got to write something we said well we've never written a song before uh well hit it. <laughs> so Ronnie Wilson, just out of the blue, starts playing the cadence that you've heard for the last 40 some years. And we go, well, we better put some chords to this thing and a melody because it will be an instrumental drum solo if we don't. So I said, you know what guys, we've been playing an E and we've been playing an A. Let's play in B. I thought I was really being an orchestral arranger at this point, right? I'm only 15, I go, all right. 
because I knew how to play double bar guitar chords, right? Because if I only could play this, right? That's, but I thought, wow, I can really pull into it, right? And then the drum solo hits, right? And I'm just crashing chords and everybody goes, wow, let's get going. Because the bass player had been playing this all the time on different songs that we used to play all the time. And so the lead guitar player, Jim Fuller, picked up this. This is before heavy metal, right? Bam! I got my amp turned up in the room, just screaming these chords out. The guys in the sound room were going, earn that, you know, just going nuts. But I'm just crashing these chords all over the place, and everybody's getting into it. Ronnie just keeps on going, you know, playing as hard and fast as he could play, right? And so after we've gotten the song pretty much developed, we rehearsed it, well, we actually played it three times. And then at the end of it, the guy goes, okay, we got it. Okay, so we got it, and we said, what are you guys going to call that thing? I go, well, let's think of some names, because in those days, songs had introductions. They had laughing, they had car sounds, they had crashing this, whatever. And we thought, well, let's, let's bust a board over a microphone like a busting surfboard, right? And so we said, let's, look at some, let's give out a laugh like Goofy going over the falls or Goofy going down the, you know, the uh, toboggan sled and Disney stuff, right? And so our manager picked up on that and after we cracked the board, then he yells out this laugh. <laughs> Way about! And we go, wow, that's cool. Put that on the front of the record, and two weeks later we have a 45 wipeout by the Safaris. Safaris are Bob Berryhill, Pat Conley, Jim Fuller, and Ron Wilson. The Safaris. Cool! You know, and there it is. And then the song is, uh, in other words, music in that day, there were other instrumentals, you know, Pipeline, Walk Don't Run, all these other songs around. And my manager comes up to me and he says, well, what do you want to do with this, guys? Well, Jim Fuller says, well, I want to sell my 25 copies because we got 100 copies of Wipeout. And on the DFS label, Dale F. Small and our manager, right? Anyway, he... Um, he gives me my 25, and I said, well, take this one, take it to a radio station. You know, I don't want to just throw it myself. I want to see it on the radio, hear it. And so, if you remember the movie, That Thing You Do, Tom Hanks, that's exactly how Wipeout started. It went out to San Bernardino and started playing on KFXM, I think that's what, KFXM, out there in 98, an AM radio station, and in Fresno. KYNO. It starts playing out in these areas, and pretty soon the people in LA, you know, this was somewhere around April or so of 63. Well, it gets into LA, and pretty soon it's getting played. It's the most requested song. All the boss jocks are loving it. Pretty soon it's number one in Los Angeles. And I go, well, that's cool. And then it goes number two on the top 100 uh, billboard cash box um, things. So. You imagine we record this somewhere in January 63. It's number one in LA in April. It's number two in the United States in July of 63. Now, so we're on the top of the charts. And now we're touring with the Beach Boys, Roy Orbison, 
Paul and Paula and April and Nino, all of the people that were flowing around in those days, we started hanging out with these people, going to Hollywood, playing on Sam Riddle's Ninth Street West, <coughs> and then various other um, TV shows, Chivalry, Shebang, uh, Lloyd Thaxton, you know, all the local shows. And suddenly, from basically June of 63 until December, we just kind of went all the local things. We played in all the concerts around. But music, as your question was, <coughs> excuse me, music is starting to really rock out because we're right at this point where it's before the Beatles. The Beatles are January of 64, February, actually February 64. So we had that whole year in there. But remember what happened in 63 in November, the John Kennedy assassination. So we had that whole time before that where the good life, the fun part, we were at the peak of it. We didn't know we were at the peak, but that's what it was, turned out to be, because the day the music died was basically when Kennedy was shot. So that, that changed the music scene right there. So we had a good six-month run right there. All right, that was Bob talking about recording Wipeout, which is probably a song almost everybody's heard in the surf guitar, surf music genre. And we're going to round out this topic hearing from Paul Johnson again. And he's going <clears> to <throat> talk about the differences between sounds on recording versus music at dances, which is kind of a cool topic. If you went to the dances in, in 61 and 62 and through the surf music heyday, the music wasn't this sort of, you know, I mean, if you just listen to the records that hit, you get the kind of a feeling it's kind of a white bread sort of sound, you know. But it was tough. It, it, was, like, it was like kind of an R&B flavored tough sort of sound that the early surf bands had and it was like when you went to those dances there was a whole atmosphere of um, of uh, you know it was it was a pretty cool thing <laughs> okay so rounding out our next topic and our last main topic we're going to be talking about some of the really cool new advances and trends that these surf music musicians uh, kind of pioneered which is really cool you learn a lot about technology and stage presence and a whole bunch of stuff. Yep. And innovations. I really like this first one with uh, Will Glover <laughs> talking about the, um, the first wireless guitar, which is kind of fun. So here's Will. We were the first to ever have wireless guitars. Did you know that? Steve was kind of like this nerd genius guy. So what he did, by the way, he ruined my guitar. Anyway, <laughs> what he did, he ruined all of our guitars. He cut out this deal in the back. He cut out a deal in the back of our, of our guitar, and he put this transmitter in it. And we would uh, connect onto uh, a radio station, and that radio station, we would pull it in, and that would grab our guitar. So if you ever uh, see the pyramids, and you see these antennas, and I'm sure you have seen it. If you look in there, you'll see us with antennas on our amplifiers. That's because we're getting that signal from the antennas so that we were wireless. And uh, we could, where other people would have to watch their courts when they made those turns and all that stuff, we didn't have to worry about that because we were wireless. And then we would run and jump right into the crowd long before all of those other guys that, that, that do it now, long before they ever did that stuff. We were doing that in, uh, at uh, um, Pirate's Cove at Disneyland. It was about this high off the ground. 
and the people would come there and they'd be dancing and doing everything and all of a sudden Skip would be playing and Steve and I would just go and just jump right in the crowd. And there was a guy who was the manager, his name was Sonny. He would go nuts because he would think lawsuit, <laughs> but the, the kids would just go nuts. They would go crazy and you know, they just hardly wait for the pyramids to come back to see what crazy things were gonna, they were going to do. So how did Steve come up with the idea of the wireless? That's pretty clever. I don't know. He was just, he was just this, this guy, you know? He's just this genius guy. So that was Will Glover talking about wireless guitars and being able to jump into the crowd, which must be exciting and terrifying at the same time. Especially if you were the first one to do it. Yeah, what right? if they didn't know to catch you? <laughs> this works. Well, here goes nothing. <laughs> so staying on the topic of uh, advances in technology and uh, trend setting, we're going to hear from Dick Dale again, uh, talking about the first rock guitar to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show. God bless my father. You know, and then he'd make me, we'd go on, I'd go on and play. Uh, I was the first rock guitarist uh, to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, when I went there to play, and then the guys wanted to go and say, oh, let's go, after we get through playing, uh, we'll go and have a breakfast, you know. And then, you know, it's one in the morning or something like that. I go, you can't do that. You're going right back to the motel with me, and we're standing on the bed. You know, like, and I'd try to sneak out, you know, the window, you know, while my father's sleeping, and cut, you know. It was so funny. He was, but God bless him, you know what? He kept me to the, he got me to the point where I've been doing this since 1955. I'm 66 now. I've never had a drug in my body. I won't even put pain pills in my body. I, I hate those or anything. I never put alcohol in my body, became a drinker. And I don't smoke cigarettes. I haven't eaten red meat in about 25 years. And that's why I'm still kicking ass on stage. When I play, the world rocks because I make their ears bleed <laughs> so I really enjoyed listening to Dick he's such a great guy and I just wanted to say that the day that we did the interview with him uh, he was living out in the desert at the time and um, is it 39 palms is 29 29 I knew it was one of those um, that is way out in the middle of nowhere and he was so gracious uh, he spent as much time as I wanted to stay which was like a month and uh, he was just great um, and really what I, I gleaned from that is uh, part of his personality is just very giving and when listening to the music that he's been creating over the last 15 years that isn't always surf guitar some of the ballads that he's written for his son, for example, are really touching and quite moving. So if you have the opportunity to delve in a little bit uh, into the more recent recordings and compositions of Dick Dale, you may find a completely different side of him as I did. So with that being said, uh, I think we're off to uh, another web clip uh, from Paul Johnson. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Paul's going to talk about uh, the use of reverb on surf music, which is very interesting because I learned about reverb when we, the introduction of reverb, when we did our Sun Records mm -hmm. podcast, which if you haven't checked that one out, that was our first two-part episode that we released during the debut of the podcast. So go back if you haven't listened to it. If you did listen to it, go back and listen again. <laughs> <laughs> so here's Paul. Well, what's interesting is that, is that, Right at about the time that surf music hit, um, or, or you know, the identification was made, 
Fender invented the reverb somewhere in the middle of 1962, so that by the summer of 62, all these new bands that were starting up, this was actually kind of a, co of a coincidence, but it really played right into it, because all these new bands that were starting up glommed onto the reverb. Dick Dale started using the reverb, and the Bel Airs started using the reverb, and, uh, and uh, we didn't use it as quite as heavily as Dick Dale did, which came to be a distinction between sort of the South Bay style of surf music usually has less reverb and the Orange County style that's modeled after Dick Dale was more reverb. But um, uh, by and large, the reverb sound came to be identified with this new thing that was called surf music and it fit because it sounded really wet and slippery. Mm -hmm. So it added all the more and, it, and, it, and that was where surf music now um, kind of get, got its own regional sound to distinguish it from, you know, uh, rock instrumentals of, of the Ventures and Dwayne Eddy and all that. I mean, Dwayne Eddy had a big hollow sound, but there was a real distinct difference to the sound of the Fender Reverb, um, where you could instantly recognize the difference between that and Dwayne Eddy. One of the reasons I kind of steered away from the Reverb was, was because I was into melody and, and chord changes and more, a little more complexity of interplay between the guitars. That was the sound I was after. And I, f I felt that the reverb kind of blurred that, you know, it just sort of made the Not slurred. Lazy players. Yeah, the notes were kind of slurred together. Now see, for Dick Dale, he had a particular attack, a particular style that that really lent itself to. And, and a lot of the surf players took up uh, picked up on that and pursued that, which is fine, because I like it. I, lo I love the sound of Miser Lou. I mean, good grief. And Pipeline, you know, the reverb in there. I mean, I love the reverb sound, but it's just for what I was doing, you know, I preferred to have, I, I, I like a little bit of it, but I tried to keep it from getting too out of hand because I didn't want to lose the, uh, you know, the distinction of the notes <laughs> that were happening. So that kind of concludes our episode on surf music for this installment of the podcast. We're going to leave you with the words of Bruce Johnson from the Beach Boys. And it's kind of a theme, I think, that everyone in the collection touches on at some point during their interview, whether they're musician or retailer or wholesaler or rep or whatever role they have in the music products industry. And that's what it's like to bring music to people because that's the whole goal. So... Here's Bruce. Well, of course, you know, one of the NAMM's themes of, is, is bringing music to people, and the Beach Boys have certainly done that to millions of people. And I just wonder, how have you put into words what it's like for you to bring music to people? Yeah, it's really great. Uh, I didn't start at the beginning, but I, as I said, I was working at Columbia Records at the time. But I started when I was 22 uh, in the band. And I've been there long enough to just still be in shock every night when I see someone my age with his grown children and their children singing the same songs. So all that is so relevant and I got to be part of uh, what the band dreamed up and Mike and Brian and, and, and other co-writers that Brian had, you know, uh, like Tony Asher for Pet Sounds, but ma mainly Mike Love. I mean, he's like Brian, here, here's Mike Love and Brian. Brian would be the guy who would be probably kind of shy, but kind of really great when you got to know him. And Mike would be the guy that would uh, 
tell him what to wear so he looked cool in front of the girls with his lyrics. You know, Mike's lyrics are awesome. All right, guys, we'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.